Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Sexual difficulties are common, and almost all of us will experience at least one at some point in our lives. When difficulties arise, not only can they make sex less pleasurable and enjoyable, but they can also create a lot of stress and anxiety, especially when you start to worry that a given problem is inevitably going to pop up every time you have sex. However, difficulties don't have to mean the end of satisfying sex. That's what we're going to be talking about today, how to maintain sexual and relationship satisfaction when difficulties emerge. The starting point for this, of course, is communicating with your partner that you're experiencing a difficulty. However, this is something many of us struggle with because sexual difficulties can be a source of great shame. So we're going to discuss how to get that conversation started and then how to deal with a wide range of difficulties from low sexual desire to difficulty staying aroused to painful sex. We're going to explore several practical tips and strategies you can try as a means of resolving these difficulties and boosting sexual satisfaction. My guest is Dr. Natalie Rosen, an associate professor in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience and Obstetrics and Gynecology at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Natalie has published more than 100 scientific papers and chapters on sexual dysfunction, but she's not just a scientific expert on this subject. She's also a sex therapist with clinical experience treating a wide range of sexual problems. This is going to be a very helpful and informative conversation, and we're going to jump in right after the break. This year, the Kinsey Institute is celebrating its 75th anniversary, honoring an extraordinary legacy of research, education, and historical preservation. As part of this celebration, the Kinsey Institute is presenting a number of exhibitions featuring incredible pieces from their archive. This includes the show Intimate Forms, featuring the work of Emilio Sanchez, which will be hosted at Indiana University, as well as the show Psychopathia Sexualis, showcasing the work of Austin Osmond Spare, which will be hosted in Chicago. Check the show notes for links and more information, and follow the Kinsey Institute on social media for other upcoming events. The Modern Sex Therapy Institutes offers a PhD program in clinical sexology, as well as multiple certification programs in sex therapy and sex education for mental health and medical professionals. You can attend from anywhere in the world and learn from renowned experts on sex and relationships. All of their programs are flexible and customizable to meet your needs and schedule. For more information, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. Natalie, you've conducted a lot of research on sexual difficulties and how to deal with them effectively. And most difficulties can be resolved, and they don't have to mean the end of your sex life or your relationship. And if you deal with them in the right way, you can still have a very satisfying, intimate life. So let's talk about how to maintain sexual satisfaction when sexual difficulties arise. And I think a good starting point for this is to talk about how to even bring up a sexual difficulty with a partner. So in some of your research, you found that communicating about difficulties is linked to fewer depressive symptoms, better sexual function, and greater relationship satisfaction. And that makes total sense because if you hide the fact that you have a difficulty from your partner, <laughs> it's probably never going to be addressed. And that might yeah. create other problems. But a lot of people feel a sense of shame around sexual difficulties, or they just don't know how to talk about them. So if you're experiencing a sexual difficulty, what are some good ways to try and get that conversation started? 
Yeah, it's a good question. And also, I would say that just to sort of drive home your intro point there about that it's hard to bring it up. One of our studies, we found that a third of women reported that they never told their partner about a sexual problem that they were having. Those difficulties range from, you know, orgasm difficulties or anxiety during sex or difficulties with arousal, that 30% are just like their partner has no clue as far as they're aware. So, and it's exactly, you know, what you said, that's no surprise then that those women are having, you know, less satisfying sex and, and are less satisfied with their relationship as well. Okay. So coming back to your question, which was about like how to even start that conversation. So one of the challenges that I think people run into is that they wait too long to have it. So especially with something like pain during sex or orgasm difficulties, it's actually going to get harder to tell a partner later on about it because then the partner feels like they, they feel hurt that they, that they haven't been told sooner and they might feel even a little bit betrayed somewhat that they were building you know this connection with you and intimacy in the relationship and that you withheld this information from them. When you're starting to build a relationship, that's kind of the point where you need to be open and honest with them so that there's that foundation that you can work on together. But I, I certainly understand why that's difficult for people because there still is this feeling of, of shame or stigma around having a sexual difficulty, part of which is because we never see it anywhere. Like it's not something that we see on TV. It's not represented in the media as like sort of a common experience, regardless of the fact that it is super common. So it makes it hard because we don't have a lot of models of like, what would it look like? So so starting early is my piece number one. You want to do it soon as possible. And then I would suggest you want to try and set the stage for it. So when we're feeling anxious about having a conversation with someone, it can be helpful to let them know that we want, that you have something you want to talk to them about so that you both are sort of in the right mindset and have, and rather than catching a partner off guard. I would also suggest not bringing it up in the bedroom, like just after you've had sex, um, because that can also be a particularly vulnerable time. So trying to have the conversation outside of, you know, when you just had sexual activity, but still at a time where you have privacy, where you feel comfort. So maybe, you know, after dinner or saying tonight after dinner, I want to talk to you about something. And then my third tip is to start off with how you're feeling. I'm really nervous to bring this up with you. If this is a hard thing for me to talk about, I'm worried about how you're going to react. Like, so to just put it out up front that like this is difficult for you is already going to put your partner in a place of wanting to be, you know, respond with care for you because they know how how hard it is. I'm sort of going on for a long list here. My last, my last tip would be to start would be to talk from a place of like I like this is what it is about me this is what is happening for me this is my experience and not to and to try not to make assumptions about what your partner might be doing or what they're doing wrong because that's going to be set things up for your partner to be maybe a bit more defensive if you're talking more about them or what they're doing so you want to talk from a place of like I've always found it difficult to orgasm with a partner let's say if that's what the problem is this is really hard for me to talk about because I feel embarrassed by it. I'm not sure why this is a difficulty for me, whatever it might be, but you're going to talk about your own experience. Yeah, I think that's all fantastic advice. And, you know, that sort of partner validation piece and, you know, not making it come across as something where it might be perceived as blame or something like that is really important in having these conversations. So I appreciate you sharing all of that. I think that's great practical advice for just getting that conversation started. 
So let's talk about some specific sexual difficulties and how people can deal with them effectively in order to enhance pleasure and satisfaction. Let's start with low sexual desire. Low desire is one of the most common problems reported across genders and sexual orientations. And in fact, in nationally representative sex surveys I've seen, you'll see that around one in three women and one in six men will say that they've experienced low sexual desire in the last year alone. Now, you've published some work looking at how engaging in novel, self-expanding activities can help boost desire, and also how having a growth mindset around sexual compatibility can also be helpful. So based on your research, what's your advice? So let's talk about that self-expansion one, because which is a bit of a misnomer. I want to kind of call it relational expansion, because it's not really about the self. It's really about the couple and what it means. So the idea uh, behind relationship expansion is about sort of how your partner kind of broadens or expands your sense of self. That's where the self piece comes into it, right? So where doing something with your partner or being with your partner helps you to sort of see the world in a different way, to see your partner in a new light to bring sort of novelty to your life in sort of an exciting way. So what we saw in one of our studies is that individuals who endorse more of this experience of expansion with their partner, that this is linked to, you know, better well-being, better sexual and relationship outcomes, particularly among couples where a woman in the partnership has low, clinically low uh, sexual desire. So uh, one of the tips or sort of the messages out of that would be, try to engage in more of these expanding activities with your partner. So one of the things that I might do with, you know, a couple, if we were talking about this in a therapy session would be to have them actually come up with a list of things, a list of things that they don't usually do with their partner. So we're not talking about like watching Netflix on a Sunday night. We're talking about, you know, some exciting novel that you could do together that maybe you've always been interested in doing. So maybe it's about cooking a new type of cuisine together that you both that you like to cook together and you've never tried cooking Thai food together or taking a, a class together, like attending a lecture that you think would, would be stimulating and you'd both be interested in. It's tricky during pandemic times to come up with ideas, I'll tell you that. But you know, it could be learning a new card game together and like opening a bottle of wine and playing together. The the key things are around novelty that it's sort of exciting and that it's going to allow for some opportunities for you to learn new things about each other, to see each other kind of in, in, a, in a new way. So we might come up with some a list of activities and then they try one. So that the homework assignment would be to like select something from the list to try it out. And then the really key piece that I think is important for like actually benefiting from doing this, this activity together is what happens after it. So afterwards, you also want to talk about or reflect, maybe write it down. Like, what was exciting about this for you? What did you learn new about your partner? Okay, so that you're actually sort of like, you're having this fun experience, but you're also stepping back and thinking like, hmm, like, yeah, I didn't really know that he could sort of, you know, take the lead on how to make sushi or whatever it might be. And watching him sort of stumble and figure that out was kind of cool. I don't get to see him do that that, that often. So you have to kind of reflect on it as well. And that, that sparks some of that excitement in the relationship, sparks that desire. Yeah. So it's not necessarily about trying new things in the bedroom. It's just having these new novel experiences together in daily life can be this thing that can boost arousal, interest, desire, because you're seeing your partner in this different light. And you're also just getting some level of generalized physiological arousal from that new activity that you're doing. So just trying new things in everyday life can be a great way of sort of 
getting that started. But as I also mentioned, part of it is kind of having the right mindset too. And so I love the paper that you published on sexual growth and destiny beliefs and how, you know, some people just think that sexual compatibility is a matter of, you know, it's just the way that it is and you're either compatible or not. Whereas other people see compatibility as something where you have to grow it and maintain it over time. And so if you have the right mindset where you can grow compatibility, that can help in terms of dealing, I think, with a problem like low desire or any other sexual difficulty in your relationship. So can you just briefly speak to kind of the importance of having the right mindset around sexual difficulties in terms of you know, getting the, the best possible outcome for treatment. Yeah. So part of it is what you're saying about like, under, like that you can grow more compatible, but also part of it is about a mindset that like, it takes effort to maintain satisfaction, sexual satisfaction, right? Like just like in our jobs often, like it takes effort to stay good at our jobs because you might have to, you know, stay up on the literature as a researcher, but whatever your job might be, you don't often, you know, most folks don't just coast. If you want to like continue to improve and do well, like there's new challenges and you have to face them, you have to learn more to continue to be good at it. And our sex life is the same, can be the same for lots of people because we are, you know, we change with age and 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 our relationships shift as we become even sort of more comfortable in them. So when we have this mindset that like, that's okay, because we have a mindset that like, Maintaining sexual satisfaction takes effort and, and work. That's actually associated with, you know, better outcomes for a lot of people because it's a it's a way of approaching things where you're not going to get as discouraged if you're faced with a challenge because you're going to see it as something that you can overcome together and, and work on. And I think even for couples who don't have particular sexual challenges or problems, seeing your sex life as something that you continue to invest in or, or and work on helps them to maintain that satisfaction. Yeah. And it's consistent with what we see in the broader literature on relationship growth beliefs, not just specifically about sex. But when you have this growth mindset that problems can be overcome by putting forth some effort, putting a little bit of work into it, relationships are more likely to last. Problems are more likely to get resolved. By contrast, if you have more of that sort of destiny belief set where things are either destined to work out or they aren't, those individuals are more likely to jump ship and leave their relationship at the first sign of problems. So that can make it harder to ultimately obtain lasting sexual and relationship satisfaction if you're not willing to sort of put forth that effort and grow compatibility because all relationships require some effort to keep them afloat. Now, another sexual problem you've researched extensively is sexual pain particularly among women. And in representative studies I've seen, somewhere around 7 to 8% of women and 2% of men say that physical pain during sex is a problem they've experienced in the last year. So it's certainly a sexual issue that is more common for um, female-identified individuals than male-identified individuals. And sexual pain can obviously have different sources and different causes, but based on your research, what are some of the most common types of sexual pain that you see and how do you address them? So there's, I guess we can talk about pain during sex. There's sort of like two kind of tracks. 
One would be when there's like an identifiable cause. So there's some kind of um, infection. It could be related to, you know, a, a side effect from some kind of treatment for cancer, for example, or there's also some uh, vulvar atrophy, so thinning of the vaginal lines that happens with menopause. And then there could be, you know, that gets treated with like estrogen cream. So like when we have like an identifiable reason, and then there's like a, there might be a specific treatment or when that reason is withdrawn, you know, it goes away. That's sort of one track. But when there is pain during sex where we can't identify a particular cause or we've sort of ruled out all the potential causes, that's when a diagnosis of what's called vulvodynia is likely appropriate, sort of a diagnosis of exclusion. And that's where that uh, statistic you cited of about 8% of women experience uh, vulvodynia. And it's com the common onset is premenopausal. So it would be, you know, women in their 20s. There's some, some women report that from the first time they tried to have sex or in fact, the first time they tried to use a tampon. Um, so anything touched to that area, it was painful. And then for other women, unfortunately, and it's really hard, you know, but I want to reassure women or any of your listeners who might be hearing this, it can happen out of the blue. So there are also women who had uh, years of pain-free intercourse, and then this pain started to emerge and get worse. And we don't really know exactly why. It's certainly a condition that has sort of some biological contributors including things like genetic predispositions and um, inflammation and um, sensitization of pain nerve endings. And then there are also a number of psychosocial kind of contributors related to how we process pain, how we sort of react to pain and interactions with a partner that can kind of, that wouldn't necessarily be like the cause, but they can maintain and keep the pain going longer. Yeah. And I, as you're talking about that, I'm thinking about how this could be different for different people and how for some it might be more of kind of a learned association where an early sexual experience was painful and then that sort of creates this expectancy effect where they anticipate that sex is going to be painful and so the outcome or how you treat it might be different if that's kind of the root cause versus there's something organic going on so i i can see how this could be a very complex issue clinically and how you know it, it would be hard to sort of figure out what the true cause is or the best way to treat it. Yeah. But, you know, that being said, sometimes the true cause is something like vulvodynia. And I say this to clients all the time, like it doesn't really matter. So they really want to know what the cause is, but actually for treatment depends on like when there's that first track I was talking about, yes, the cause matters and, and we sort of uh, attack it that way. But with vulvodynia, where we can't necessarily pinpoint a single cause, then usually a an approach that's going to target multiple potential, you know, factors at once is helpful. So I would say, you know, there we've got three options. There's a medical approach, for example, there are, or the most commonly prescribed would be like a topical anesthetic ointment that's applied before bed each night. So this is not a like before sex, I'm going to numb the area. This is actually a topical application that's about desensitizing the pain nerve endings that have gotten really sensitive to any, any kind of touch. So there's a protocol that looks at, that works on the nerve endings using a topical anesthetic. So there's, that's a medical approach. There is a pelvic floor physical therapy. So target, so we also know that women who have pain during sex, that they have dysfunction of their pelvic floor muscles that have either like been trained to sort of engage a defensive reaction because they're sort of protecting against the pain. Um, and there's increased sort of muscle tension. And there's a pretty good, very good empirical evidence now supporting 
pelvic floor physical therapy for women who have pain during sex. So there's that. And then there's, of course, a, psycho, a psychological approach. So psychotherapy that targets, you know, works with women and couples with pain during sex. It's really about looking at, you know, the thoughts that we have about, about the pain, our expectations, like you were referring to, uh, what we do when we, when we have pain before or during or after sex, and how we can engage in a way that is going to, you know, take the attention off the pain and move it more towards the potential benefits of sex and, and sort of coping tools around the pain so, so that couples can, can manage it a bit more effectively and kind of reduce its interference. Thanks for sharing all of that. We've talked about sexual pain on the show a few times before, but I think you've provided the most comprehensive explanation of kind of, you know, how this works in terms of different tracks of pain and what the different treatment options are that are available. And I think that's all very helpful and, and reassuring to know that there are multiple potential solutions because this is a common problem. Now, Natalie, another common problem is difficulty becoming aroused or staying aroused. And that often goes along with lower sexual interest and desire. And you've published some work looking at how people's motivations for having sex can play a role in this. And specifically, when people prioritize their partner's pleasure above their own and sort of totally neglect their own needs in the process, they tend to experience more difficulties. Now, certainly being motivated to meet your partner's needs is a good thing, but not when it comes at the expense of your own. So can you talk a little bit about that and how sort of resetting your goals and beliefs around sex can potentially improve sexual function? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you, you summarized it so well already there, right? What we're seeing kind of in the literature is that being, you know, motivated and being sort of a, a responsive partner would be another way to put it. So being the kind of partner that like wants to please the other partner, right? You want to, you want to make them feel good. You want to meet their sexual needs. But, and when you're sort of like genuinely motivated by that, it tends to be a good thing because it feels good to give. That's another way to put it, right? We enjoy feeling like we're a giving and a loving partner. But when we do that kind of too far, when people take it too far and that they're sort of like completely neglecting what they need or want in a sexual situation. So an example would be, I'm feeling really tired. In fact, I actually have a headache tonight. So it's not just tired, but like I'm, I'm really not feeling that great. And my partner is interested in having sex with me, initiates, and I think to myself, you know, they're really interested in sex and, and I want to be a good partner, so I'm going to do it. But then I do it and like, I feel even worse afterwards because my head, my head is pounding. I'm not able to connect with my partner. I'm really sacrificing kind of like what my needs are in that moment as well. And that's actually bad for our relationship because the partner picks up on it, right? So when you're having sex just to meet their needs and, and you're getting nothing out of it or, and it's not, you know, not feeling good to you, partners can often pick up on that. And so it, it actually defeats the purpose that you were trying to like meet your partner's needs. Yeah, makes total sense. And you can also see how that could create sort of learned associations for both partners that sex just isn't going to be that good. And so, you know, that might reduce desire, it might make it harder to stay aroused, because, you know, your partner seems to be going through the motions, because they're not really in it for themselves. And so I, I think in some of your work and Amy Muse's research, you've described this as unmitigated sexual communion, right, where it's just sort of your prioritizing their pleasure to the total exclusion of your own. And that's not really a very healthy way to approach sexual relationships. 
Now, another common sexual problem centers around the impact of pornography on relationships. And for example, you published some work looking at how the attributions that someone makes for their partner's porn use is linked to sexual and relationship satisfaction. And how, for example, if you make negative attributions, like you assume that your partner is watching porn because they're sexually bored in the relationship, that's linked to worse outcomes. So the way we interpret our partner's porn use matters and also just sort of what our general expectations are for what's acceptable behavior in a sexual relationship can sometimes create conflicts. So as a sex researcher and therapist, I'm just curious for your general thoughts on kind of when you see porn becoming a problem area in relationships. So when does it become something that uh, becomes a problem source that needs to be addressed? Yeah, so I think that that uh, does have a lot to do with how you're defining what's acceptable in your relationship. So there are some folks who would consider, you know, watching pornography to be a form of infidelity. And there is some research that suggests that, that like, if you give people like a bunch of items about like what constitutes infidelity, that for some people that would fit the bill, that's going to cause a problem. If that's like a, a belief that or that you have, or and it's sort of like a, a disruption to the agreement that you of monogamy that you feel like you have in your relationship. So I think it becomes a problem when members of a couple have sort of like different ideas around what's acceptable and what's not. It can also become a problem if there's like deceit around it and that's upsetting for people, then it can become a problem. So those are, you know, two of the places that I think that there is an issue and it's not putting any kind of, you know, judgment on, on either what either person is doing. It's really about the mismatch between the couple in terms of, you know, what they're comfortable with or what their expectations are in the relationship. Yeah. And I think so many people just have a tendency to blame porn as being the problem. And we know that if you look at the research on pornography, that it can have different effects on different people. And in some relationships, it can be a positive factor where it can be a form of sexual novelty that boosts sexual interest, desire and arousal. And so, you know, for example, couples who use porn together tend to report more sexual satisfaction and they're more likely to keep uh, passion alive in the relationship. But porn can become a problem, particularly in those areas you mentioned where there are these discrepant expectations about it or the attributions you make for your partner's porn use. So I think that speaks to the importance of really getting on the same page about what is and is not okay and acceptable in the relationship early on, because most people just don't really establish that. And they just sort of walk in with these assumptions for what is okay and what isn't. And that's where those discrepant expectations can yeah. really take hold. And there's a lot of mind reading that happens there too with couples where they just, they especially with this attributions work, where they think that they know why their partner is doing something, but they haven't actually talked about it. And I've seen that often in, in couple therapy where it's just the first time that they've actually openly said, what's okay around masturbation? What's okay around pornography? And sometimes it can be actually really reassuring for couples because they've not actually talked about it, but they both are fine with it. And then it feels like less secretive or less like, you know, there's less shame or guilt or all these negative emotions that come with just not having ever said that openly, like, yes, I like to masturbate. And this is when I usually do it. And do you know that I'm doing that? And yes, I do know, or I suspected that and I'm fine with it, you know, and then they sort of get on the same page as you're saying. Yeah, I think that's great. And it can also be this way that you take the shame out of a lot of this as well. Now, we're running short on time, but one other topic I wanted to ask you about as it relates to resolving sexual difficulties is emotion regulation. So the way that people and their partners 
manage their emotions in a relationship matters. And there are some strategies that work better than others. So can you just tell us a little bit about kind of the importance of emotion regulation in dealing with sexual difficulties and maintaining sexual satisfaction? For sure. Yeah. And I'm glad you asked about it because I'm becoming more and more convinced that it is actually like a essential component is around the idea of emotion regulation. And so when we talk about emotion regulation, we're talking about the ability to like become aware of our emotions, how we experience them and how we potentially change them in that moment to, to sort of cope more effectively. And one of the reasons why I think emotion regulation is so central for people who are talking about, who, who are dealing with sexual problems is that the sexual problems trigger a lot of strong emotions. So it triggers, and we've been talking about this, feelings of guilt, feelings of shame, um, feelings of sadness, and a lot of feelings of anxiety. So we know that there's all this negative emotion that arises when we when when we are talking about sex or like in the context of a sexual problem, that being able to like effectively manage those emotions is going to be one of the best tools available to then be able to sort of resolve some of the issues or come to like, you know, a, a better space with your partner. So what we what we've been seeing as one of the sort of key problematic ways of regulating emotion is actually avoidance of emotion. So it's harder to identify because we're not talking about major outbursts or, you know, crying or huge arguments. We're actually talking about withdrawal away from, and, and it's a response to those negative emotions. So I would say that's one of the, the key tips is to kind of pay attention to noticing when you're actually shying away from um, confronting the problem, talking about it with your partner. It's probably because it is evoking such strong emotions in you that the way you're trying to manage it is by pushing it down or staying away. But we all know, like, just like, you know, trying to take a beach ball and keep it underwater, you, it takes a lot of effort to push it down, but it, no matter what, it's going to come back up. And it's the, that's what happens with the avoidance of emotions as well. So when we are avoiding strong emotions we're feeling around sex or around the sexual difficulties we're having, in the long run, it's not going to work. They're going to keep coming back up. So that's why we're seeing emotion. Avoidance is really the, you know, the tough one. And then the flip side, you know, the strategies try and teach couples or work on would be how to approach those conversations and still be aware of the emotions that are coming up, but then learn the skills to cope with those strong emotions so that you can still, you know, engage effectively in sort of problem solving and, and acceptance or, or, yeah, working with your partner effectively. Yeah, I love that. All makes total sense. And, you know, avoidance is usually never the answer when it comes to sex. You know, some people, as you said, avoid, you know, kind of confronting or dealing with their emotional problems. Some people avoid awkward, uncomfortable situations, such as, you know, sharing a sexual fantasy or desire with their partner because, you know, again, they're worried about the shame. Some people just avoid sex because, you know, they've had problems before in the past. Avoidance just never leads to great outcomes. So but people don't often know that they're even doing it. So that's yeah. part of part of the key like thing here is actually bringing that avoidance into your awareness because you can't change it if you don't even know you're doing it. So we often, you know, see couples where they're just they're distressed about their sex life, but they actually have not been talking about it because the, the avoidance has taken such strong hold of them that the way that they're sort of functioning as a couple is to just never talk about it and, and to avoid it, but it's not working. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Natalie. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and maybe even participate in one of your upcoming studies? 
So you can go to www.natalieorosen.com. It would be the website. I also have a secondary website called www.postbabyhankypanky.com. And that's actually a knowledge translation uh, website that has a bunch of videos and other resources and is about sort of taking the science and packaging it into sort of more easily understandable bits and pieces to help a couple start the conversation start their conversations around sex post baby. And I'll just mention that both of those two websites are being revamped. They're still available in the next couple of months. They'll be unveiled. Uh, beautiful new websites with lots of great information and opportunities to participate in research. Thank you for all of the great work and research that you do in this area and also for creating helpful resources for people who might be dealing with some of these issues so that they can develop and establish happier and healthier sex lives and relationships. So thanks again for your time, Natalie. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.